You're listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in Lexington, Kentucky, and we would love to see you join God's restoring work of love in your life. You can find out more about us at restorationlex.com slash welcome. There's helpful links about how you can grow, how you can serve, and be good news in our city. Thanks for listening. Oh, September 23rd, 2011, that little kid, that uh, 12-year-old that desperately needs a haircut that read our scripture this morning, um, he was born on September 23rd, 2011. It was one of my obviously most memorable days. Um, but what I was thinking about as I was looking at our passage of Scripture this week was that moment, and if you're a parent, you probably know this, that moment where they're wheeling you out to the uh, car and you have the little baby in the car seat and suddenly that moment hits you where like, I got to actually take this thing home now. Like, it can't just stay here. I have, I'm responsible for this child now. That terrifying moment when you realize, like, this is happening. Like, this is for real. So we put the kid in our little Ford Focus at the time. We drove away, and I'm just, like, staring out the window, sober-minded. I cannot believe they are allowing us to take this tiny baby home. And I love this scene that we're looking at in the Gospel of Luke today because this is just a couple of weeks after Jesus was born. We love that little nativity scene. They don't do the nativity scene of a couple weeks later when the baby's crying and peeing everywhere and causing a mess and all of the sorts of beginning of parenting moments that Mary and Joseph were probably facing in the sleepless nights, the overwhelming scene of what they experienced the week before with angels and all sorts of things were happening in the midst of this birth. And now their parents, they're caring not just for a child, which is hard enough, but Mary and Joseph know that this is the promised Messiah. And there was no like special care. There's no like team that followed them around everywhere. God entrusts himself as a child to this teenage couple in the middle of nowhere. And this faithful Jewish couple carry this child in our story today into the temple. They begin to follow the laws and the rituals of the Jewish people. Look with me here on the screen. It's Luke chapter 2. It says, when the time came for the purification rites by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there's a couple things that's going on here that you might miss if you don't understand the full context of Old Testament law. First of all, Mary is participating in this Old Testament tradition of this purification ritual after she gives birth. So she's offering a sacrifice. It says, two doves and two pigeons. Kind of strange and specific. When you go back and look in the Old Testament, doves and pigeons were the sacrifice that were made by people who were poor by people who could not afford to bring a full sacrifice. This is probably the clearest picture we get in the New Testament, that Jesus grew up in poverty. So that's happening. Not only that, but they're following this tradition of the law where when you have a baby, you bring it to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord, to say, this child, we are raising it in the Lord. And so I just want to take a moment and have a little bit of a mini-sermon here 
within the sermon. Because I think this passage points to something that's a, a reality for the conversations you and I have about our faith. What we see in here is that Jesus was religious. Now, we love to paint Jesus as this modern freedom fighter, anti-religion, anti-establishment, but as you read through the Gospels, we see a deeply religious person. Throughout his entire life, Jesus is actively participating in the religious life of his people, going to temple and synagogue, participating in the ways of his own people. What we need to know, looking at a story particularly like this, is that Jesus is anti-legalism. He's anti-weaponizing the law against people, but he's not anti-religious. He's constantly practicing the ways of his faith over and over again, actively, passionately, religious. We oftentimes have painted Jesus as being anti-religion, but in reality, the opposite is true. So, another unspoken detail in the story that we often miss, this story in and of itself is often skipped over because it's not part of the nativity scene, is that this is taking place in the temple. For the Jews, the temple is the center of their life, political, religious, every single aspect of what it means to be Jewish was centered around the temple. It's where they go to meet with God. It's where they go to pray. They go to sacrifice. They go to give. It was a place where in their imagination, heaven and earth meet, where the presence of God was. And because this was the center point for the entire nation, this temple complex built by Herod, or rebuilt by Herod, I should say, about a century before was huge. Now, I don't know if you've seen pictures of what the temple in the time of Jesus was like, but this place could hold probably up to around 100,000 people. This is like two Commonwealth stadiums worth of people comfortably in this massive facility. So imagine Mary and Joseph, this young teenage couple, barely having this baby a few weeks before, walking into a crowd of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. I didn't even want to take my baby into Target. I, and here I, I'm reading this, and they are bringing this baby child into a noisy, bustling environment, probably overwhelming. This small-town teenage couple, and imagine how overwhelming that must have felt, holding your baby tight, trying to protect him from everything that's happening around you. They're coming from a quiet stable in Bethlehem, way out in the middle of nowhere, into the noise, the frantic noise of thousands upon thousands of people. Now, I want to pause here because this in context of the temple, is a pretty astounding moment in the story. For thousands of years, this temple complex has been the center of what they believed was God's presence. So, there's the scene in 2 Chronicles 7 where Solomon prays after he builds the temple that David promised would be built, and he prays and dedicates the temple in the presence of God, it says, falls on the temple. There is fire coming down from heaven. There is a cloud of glory, Shekinah glory, covering the entirety of the place. I haven't had that happen yet at Restoration. Maybe one day. You never know. Fire probably is a hazard, but I'm down with the cloud. 
down with the cloud of smoke, the glory cloud if we want to. That's the sort of imagination they had for what it looks like for God to show up, His presence to dwell within the temple. Here's what's so crazy about this. God in that moment was arriving in the temple, but there's no big pillar of fire, and there's no big cloud of glory. There's a baby on a hip walking in the midst of a crowd of people who are coming to worship God, not realizing they're brushing shoulders with Him, being held by His mother. You see, Luke 2 gives us this picture now of these people walking into this crowded area of worship for God, but not seeing God. Now, there's two people in this story, Luke tells us, that in the midst of this spectacle, in thousands upon thousands of people somehow recognize that God is present. The first one we're introduced, his name is Simeon. Let's keep reading together here on the screen. It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praising God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Thousands of people, and yet he notices this baby is different. We notice three things about Simeon here in the text. First, it says he's righteous and devout. In the Jewish imagination, the word for righteousness and justice are interchangeable. So it's not just talking about Simeon being a good man. Simeon loves his neighbor. Simeon cares for the people around him. The righteousness of Simeon is not just expressed in his vertical religious faith. It's in how he loves and cares for other people. Second, this strange phrase, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does consolation mean? Not one that I hear a lot. It means to console. In other words, to comfort. He's waiting for God's comfort. For those who've lived under the thumb of this oppressive Roman empire now for generations, he's waiting on the Messiah to come and free his people. He's longing for God to bring comfort. Finally, the Holy Spirit, it says, was upon him. And this Holy Spirit, in the same spirit that filled the temple thousands of years before, prompts him, wherever he is in Jerusalem at this point, to go to the temple courts. Everything you've been waiting for is there. And so he listens. This righteous, loving man listens to the prompting of the Spirit and just goes in the midst of the crowd knowing something there that he is longing for. Then a few verses down, there's another person we meet, this woman named Anna. Verse 36 says this, There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Peniel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. Now let's pause here. This is 
a woman called a prophet. Only seven times in the Old Testament is a woman called a prophet. Luke is countercultural in the way he writes his gospel in lifting up not only the lowly, but lifting up women as voices, as preachers of the gospel over and over and over again. Women in this world had very little cultural power, and as a widow for that many decades, she would have been very far down the ladder of society. Women were second-class citizens in that time, and as a widow, she would have been even lower. But it says here that she's in the temple constantly praying and worshiping. And then in Herod's temple, what they had set up is this literally stratified version of how close you can get to God. There's the Holy of Holies. There's the part where the men can go. Then there's the part where the women can go. And then on the outside of that, there's the part where the Gentiles, the non-Jews can go. The women could only go so far. You can see here on the screen this picture right there. That's as close as a woman as you could get to the holy of holies. And yet, Anna, day after day, year after year, did the very same thing. She went as far as she could there in the women's court, and she offered herself to God. Luke continues describing this. He says, she never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them. And that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, like Simeon, thousands of people, but the Holy Spirit says, that one, that is everything you've been hoping for. That's everything you've been praying for. Thousands and thousands of people coming to the temple to worship, and only two people notice that the one they've come to worship right in front of their face, brushing shoulders with the Messiah being held on his mother's chest. Two people among thousands who recognize this. And I think the same is true for us every single day, because I think Jesus has a way in our faith journeys of going unseen and unnoticed, right? Jesus never seems to be about the spectacle, Jesus never seems to be about getting your attention with spectacle. Jesus still shows up in our journeys, still shows up in our stories in unseen ways, in unnoticed ways. And he does it in the same way that we see in the story. And I think, I think he does it for the same reason. I was listening to this song this week by an artist by the name of John Mark McMillan, and it's a song called The Crown of Love. And this line has stuck with me. It says, Jesus Save me from the tyranny of the familiar. I love that line. The tyranny of the familiar. I don't know if you know what that means, but it means that when you do something over and over and over and over again, those patterns of life, they reinforce these unconscious ways of of thinking, these unconscious ways of doing our life that, that sort of form our expectation of the world around us. We talked about this before, how our brain actually builds these patterns, these neural networks, how our experiences 
form these interpretations of our reality, our expectations as they are in the present. So sometimes our past experiences, the patterns we've developed, have completely transformed how we expect things to happen in the present. Meaning, for better or worse, you and I are at the mercy of our expectations. You and I are at the mercy of how we understand and expect our world to move forward. This is especially true as a church. Now, as a pastor, I am constantly aware that when you choose to come into a room like this, when you choose to come and be a part of restoration, you're bringing in past experiences that form an expectation for how the present should be, right? You're being formed in that way. I had the same way. So, for instance, I talk to people all the time who've had, let's just put it, less than positive experiences with the church in the past, right? And because of this, when you've lived in the church through patterns of dysfunction and relationships of dysfunction, when you've been wounded, when you've been disillusioned by what you've seen, you tend to then expect it to happen. You expect it in the future. You even look for it. Your brain is wired when you've seen dysfunction then to look for it in places wherever you are. So you may want to experience the presence of God in worship, but your brain is wired to walk into a room like this and find what's wrong, to find what's not very good. Or you may want and believe in the value of community and deep relationships, but your brain has been wired from your experience of being hurt and let down so many times that you never let down your guard. And over time, these defense mechanisms that develop within us become self-fulfilling prophecies. I can't get connected in community because I'm already expecting not to get connected in community. I can't experience the presence of God because I'm already experiencing what all the things around me are keeping me from the presence of God. And because I expect these things to happen, I end up receiving exactly what I'm looking for, for better or for worse. And listen, I get it. I struggle with it too. And I've been hurt and betrayed by the church a lot I have stories upon stories, and I know a lot of us in this room have stories upon stories. I know what it feels like to wrestle with cynicism that can't seem to free itself enough to just simply be present in a room like this with the people around me so I can just love people where I'm at instead of always having to have my guard up emotionally and spiritually. But I keep having to fight that. One way, a very tangible way. You probably don't even notice this every week. I, have, I don't really talk about it. Every week, I sit on that front row for worship. And here's why. It's not because the pastor gets the throne up here. We, like, we don't have a nice big, you know, velvet seat up here for me, thank God. I had to speak at a church one time like that, and it was the most uncomfortable experience of my ministry life, sitting in front of people on a throne. I do that Because in my past experiences of church where I've led worship, where I've spoken in large environments, I've been trained to be the person in the back fixing everything. I've been trained to always look for what's wrong so I can fix it, so everyone can have a wonderful experience, like I'm some sort of concierge at the Plaza Hotel. And I sit up front every week, not because the pastor should sit up front. I sit up front because 
I need to not see anything that's happening, and I need to focus on Jesus. And I think that, for me, is not only for my own spiritual journey, it is for, hopefully, an example to the people who are coming in this church, knowing that there could be stuff going wrong. There could be things falling down back there. I don't know. The music might not sound perfect, or the slide might not come up at the same at the right time. But you know what? I'm here. I'm present. I'm with Jesus, because I need to be. I need to show that need for Jesus just as much as anybody that walks in this room. And that's one way every week I'm trying to subvert my expectations in worship and be present to God. And that's what I find so moving about this passage today is that Anna and Simeon both found Jesus because they found what they were looking for. They found what they went after. Because their hearts and their minds, their spirits were already looking for the one who was there, who was promised, God gave them exactly what they were looking for. And they found him even though God arrived outside of their expectations. They were open to a God that did not fit within their categories. They were open to a God that did not match their experiences. Neither of them could enter into the Holy of Holies. Simeon was not a priest. She was a woman. They couldn't get anywhere near, and yet God drew near to them in their pursuit of him. Better or worse, you and I, we are at the mercy of our expectations. We will always find what we're looking for. So when we come to a place like this, when we gather here, when we get together with community, the real tangible question you and I need to ask is, what are we really looking for? What are we expecting? Some of us, if we're honest, we have been going through the motions. We have been formed to do a certain thing, a certain way, to think about church this way, to think about faith that way, and we have gone through it mindlessly for days or months or even years, and we don't have the slightest clue like those people walking through the temple. We might be brushing shoulders with the king. We might be rubbing arms up against the one who is present to us, but we're not present enough to find him ourselves because we're not looking for him. We don't expect him to be here. Our categories and our convictions have grown so firm, our defense mechanisms have grown so strong, our hearts grow so callous and so cold that we miss what could be right in front of our face. But I believe there's another way forward. And that's why I love that this is the last passage of the year, because I think as we enter into the final day of our story, it, what the Holy Spirit is doing is calling us to be a people like Simeon and like Anna who transform our expectation to say, God, reawaken my expectation for you. Reawaken my expectation that, God, not only are you present here with me, but that, Lord, I can lay down my stubbornness, I can lay down my cynicism, and I can be open to the God who's already present right here with me. I can be open to the God that I believe is speaking and acting through the people that maybe I've turned away, 
through the people maybe I've written off, in the ways and through the songs and through the experiences, maybe I don't think he should be in. God tends to keep showing up in these places and among people where we least expect him. Are we open? Do we expect his presence? So this is what I want to pray as we close today. What I want to invite you to do is you just bow your heads and close your eyes this morning and we move into a time of worship. That we would pray, God, reawaken my expectation. God, reawaken my expectation. God, soften our hard hearts. Lord, make us a people like Simeon and Anna who stubbornly expect God to be present to us. Where we have been formed to go through the motions, God, where we walk into rooms and to places like this out of habit and not out of love, may you stir within us something new today. And as we close out this year, May this prayer reawaken something new in us for this new year coming. May you teach us to look for you, to expect you to move, to expect you to speak, to expect you to be present in profound and transformative ways. Move in us in this way, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we're going to continue through our time of worship, through songs. So if you don't mind to join us in standing as we prepare to sing. Thank you.